Good day. So being Isaiah at 35, hey Chris, good to see you're awake and ready to go. <laughs> I know. So we're at Isaiah 35 today. It's the first major division of the book. It's kind of like the law. You get the bad news first, you know, the warning and judgment, but then there's the consolation that God provides. So that's where we have come to today, a, a, a passage that's really God's promises for his people. And though this promise is one that will be fulfilled uh, during the millennium period or the millennial reign of Christ, that will follow the seven years of tribulation, this is that's the period it's speaking about ultimately, but the truth of this passage is relevant for us today. It can be experienced in full now when Jesus sits enthroned in our hearts. And that is really the tack that we'll approach this passage from today. So when, when this was spoken to the people, it was afar off for them. But Jesus has come, and Jesus, we know, will come again. And... Uh, it's something that perhaps we can be a bit callous to. Verses that we've read or heard and we think, well, yeah, that's true. But let's take a step back and look at our lives and say, and honestly evaluate, is this a reality in my life? This peace and this everlasting joy that God has promised, am I experiencing that today? Do I, do I have this sort of victory Am I walking in these promises? Am I living in light of what we read here in Isaiah 35? We live in a society that, for the most part, sees virtually no need for God. He's been reduced to a caricature by skeptics. People don't recognize God's character, the things that he said in his word, the things that he's done he doesn't get credit for, and the things he, he says he will do people don't believe. And the call of Christ, it's for all to repent, to follow him, to trust in him. And even Christians, even those who believe the word, the Bible to be the, the actual word of God, we can fall into despair and hopelessness. We can feel like there's no help or hope for me, that there's nothing that can change my situation. We can live our lives far below the standard of royalty that God has designed for us. We can settle for scraps from his table when he's given us a seat of honor. He has a place for us. And we can... Um, it's like we're longing for rest. We're hoping for something to change. And we think that it's never going to change on this side of heaven. But God has provided it. He has promised it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for your truth. We ask that you would minister to our hearts today, that you would touch us where it is needed, that you would open our eyes to see that we would be glorifying you and that we would see your glory, that we'd recognize how good you are, how gracious these promises that you've written, they're for us. May we lay hold of them and glorify you evermore in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaiah 35, starting in verse 1. It says, the wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. 
They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. There will someday be peace in this world, but it's not the way that the world imagines it will come. I've talked to someone who, who said, oh, you know, my husband, he, he believes in utopia. Like, he's a utopian. And it's like, well, you can keep trying that. Uh, but utopia, it's devi- defined as an imaginary place or state where everything is perfect. So on earth, utopia is impossible because by definition, it's imaginary. It's something that you come up with your mind because whenever we seem to get situations under control or the way we'd like, we find at some point we're not satisfied with them and we'd change it. I remember when we were remodeling our house and doing a big renovation and we were able to do things exactly how we wanted. And after we had it exactly how we wanted, do you think we would have done it exactly the same way the next time? No. We had a chance to create our own little utopia, failed miserably. We were happy with everything, but um, the world, it says that peace hinges upon wealth and a lack of poverty and better government and education and social justice and clean energy. And and these are the things that are going to promote peace. But the Bible says it will take the judgment of God and restoration through the rule of Jesus Christ. That is how peace will come. Judgment and rule under Jesus. So the world is going to be laid waste through the tribulation period. The world is already in places a wasteland. People's hearts are already uh, apart from God. But at the coming of Jesus, it says that the deserts will rejoice. There will be a blooming There will be water that flows forth, that living water from the throne of Christ. And there's three areas mentioned here. Lebanon, it has a snowy mountain range. Carmel, it means hill. Sharon is a coastal plain. So it's like from the mountains, the hills, the plains, all will see the glory of the Lord, as it says there. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. And Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. Followers of Jesus saw his glory in many ways. One was through miracles. John 2.11. It says, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So his glory manifested through miracles. Also, if you could turn to John 11, starting in verse 39. I love how God takes hopeless situations things that seem permanently bad, and he's able to redeem them. John eleven thirty nine. Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, had been dead for four days. Jesus comes to the tomb, and people expect he's coming there to mourn, but he had other designs. It says in verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. 
Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. The glory of God. We've seen the glory of God through speaking light into the darkness, from creating the world with the words of his mouth. His glory is seen with lives transformed from being dead in sins and separated from God to being born again, to being new creations and in raising the dead. Even this morning I was reading in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not hoping for the glory, but an expectation of God's glory, of how he's revealed himself to the world and to us. So what's impossible with men is possible with God. And our lives can resemble a barren wasteland or a war-torn wilderness But God is able to make us fruitful again despite our failures, despite what we cannot do and have never been able to change. He can change it. When all hope of men have failed, Jesus says, if you will believe, you will see the glory of God. So we have to say, do I believe that? Do I believe that what he says is true? God's glory is greatest in your wildest imagination. We can give up hope like Martha. Mary and Martha said, Jesus, if you had only been here, our brother would not have died. You would have been able to heal him. They never thought that he was going to raise him from the dead. That's why they weren't excited to pull back the stone. They said, oh, Lord, he's he's been in there for four days. It's foul by now. Nobody wants to smell that. And he's like, open it up. He didn't tell them what he was going to do. But they had to trust him. And they obeyed him, and then Lazarus was resurrected and came forth. So are we willing to trust God to open up that area to that foul thing that we'd rather not God have to look at so that there can be restoration, so there can be new life? Loose him. He was bound, but he was loosed. Let him go. A testimony of God's power to redeem, save, and restore. Isaiah 35, verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, Be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. When these words were spoken, the people of Jerusalem were afraid. They were weak. They were depressed. They wondered what was the point of fighting when the Assyrians were coming down upon them. It seemed like their best efforts were futile. It was a waste of time. They were tired of having their hopes of deliverance dashed. Every report that seemed to come in was a bad one, and they weren't making headway. They were losing ground, and they had really accepted defeat. But the prophet said, Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. I like the line in the Lord of the Rings movie when Gandalf says to the king who was restored, he says, your fingers would remember their old strength better if they grasped your sword. You'll remember your strength better if you grasp your sword. And sometimes we lose heart in the battles that we face because we've lost grip on God's word, the sword of the Spirit. It's laid in its sheath for a long time. We haven't applied it to our lives. 
we haven't seen, well, what does God promise? We haven't thought about what he's done. We've forgotten about what he said he's going to do. And we look at the world that's gone to hell and we think, wow, what's, who, how can I change anything? Well, I can't, but God can. He can change me. And if he can transform me, he can change anyone. David's credited with killing Goliath and other military exploits, but he gave all credit to God for strengthening him, for teaching him how to fight, teaching him how to win. He wrote in Psalm 18.29, For by you I can run against a troop, by my God I can leap over a wall. So he's like, I can take on anybody, a whole troop of soldiers. I can leap over a wall. God's given me that strength. Also in Psalm 144, 1 and 2, he says, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle, my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. He trains my fingers to fight, to grip that sword and to use it in the right way. And I love it. His first line, my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and deliverer. As Christians, we face conflict all the time. We face, face conflict from the flesh. We face conflict to conform to the world, to think like the world, to act like the world. But through faith in Jesus and obedience to him, the Bible says we are more than conquerors through Jesus. If we're surrendering to our own lusts, if we're surrendering to our addictions, then we haven't yet surrendered before God. Because if we surrender to him, he will fight our battles, as we sung this morning. So God says to the fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. It takes a lot for me to admit that I'm legitimately afraid. Maybe it's as a man, I don't know. Pride in there. I don't want to admit that I'm afraid. I don't want to admit that I'm weak. And we can go to great lengths to hide our fear or to explain it away as just concern. Use whatever word you like. We can put on a tough exterior or we can go the other way and just quit, just give up, quit fighting. But if God says we can be strong, through him we can. And if God says, do not fear, we don't have to be a slave to fear anymore. We can be valiant and courageous. It's saying God's going to come with a vengeance. Nobody else knows what you're going through. No one else knows what you're suffering. But God is coming with a vengeance on your behalf to defeat those who are defeating you. Not that we would wish ill upon our enemies. We'd have compassion on them. We would be praying for them. But we face enemies that we can't even see. And sometimes the enemy is us. Jesus said in Revelation 22.12, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Christ has ascended. He has gone to the Father. He says, I'm also coming back with a reward. Let's not forget that Jesus has already come. He has come. His glory has been revealed. And he hasn't left us alone or helpless. He sent the Holy Spirit to fill us, to empower us. He's provided all we need to be equipped and victorious in this sin-soaked world. He's come and he says, be saved. 
come to me, all ends of the earth. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. If you're hungry, come to me and eat. Find rest for your soul. If you could turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 12, 11, there's a passage there that quotes verse 3. The context is interesting because the battle that the Israelites were facing, it was a direct consequence for their sin. God was using the Assyrians at that time, and we're going to read about it in the next coming weeks. There's some historical overviews that we're going to be reading. Um, God had used the Assyrians as a rod to correct and chasten his people. He used war to teach them something, to bring them to their senses. He allowed them to feel pain so that they would recognize their need for his deliverance. They would put away their idols and seek him. The Bible says that God chastens those whom he loves. If we persist in sin, he is going, he is willing to inflict pain to bring us to our senses in some way. That's how our bodies work, right? Sometimes it takes, like, like we don't like to admit we're afraid. We, you notice how people are always getting over their colds? It could be the first day they have a cold, but they're like, oh yeah, I'm just coming off this cold that I have. Yeah, you've had it for how long? Like we, we want to be on the tail end of that kind of thing. We don't want to say, oh, I think I'm coming out with a cold and I've got two or three weeks stretching out before me of misery. But no, no, it's, it's getting better. Things are getting better. Um, it takes extreme pain. It takes negative feelings. It takes bad symptoms in our body before we will humble ourselves to go to a medical professional or a physician. We have to be pretty sick to go to the doctor, right? There's so many remedies we have over the counter, check out the internet. There's all, there's all these things we can try to, to make ourselves feel better. But the fact is, there's a point that comes when we realize I don't have the tools to make myself better. I need antibiotics. I need surgery. There's something wrong, and I need to find out what's wrong. God brings those troubles, bad feelings, ill health. He allows these things at times so that we can re-examine ourselves and say, am I walking in the right way? Is, there some, is my life being lived as God intends? So Hebrews 12, 11 through 14, it says, Now no chastening seems joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. God chastened his people in Isaiah's day. He was chastening Christians in the day Hebrews was written. And to our day, he has not changed. When we suffer, we're to examine ourselves. Remaining in sin and trying to follow Jesus is like trying to walk with both feet dislocated. And that is brutal and impossible, painful. But notice the difference there. It says, Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. So there's this promise of healing to those who choose to repent and to walk the right way. We don't have to have those dislocated feet. There can be healing. There can be restoration. And we can walk uprightly on that path of holiness when we 
Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, but respond to it obediently. Back in Isaiah 35, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. Our God is able to do the impossible. From the beginning of time, it's unheard of that anyone with eyes blind from birth should see, or ears deaf from birth should hear. But as Jesus ministered, it seems these things happened all the time. It was with regularity. He was cleansing a leper. He was casting out demons from the possessed. The mute, they began to speak. The lame, they jumped to their feet. We're not talking about surgical treatment. We're not talking about physio here. We're talking about miraculous displays of God's power to reverse something that had been a life for 38 years. That, that man by the pool who was lame. We're talking about healing and delivering power. I remember when I had my knee surgery. There was no leaping for quite a while after that. As the, the ligament, they said, okay, no strenuous work for four weeks. And you need to go to physio and take this for pain. And Jesus never did that. He never said, okay, now blind Bartimaeus, you need to wear these, this, the, put these drops in and you need to do this or that. Or the man by the pool. He didn't say no heavy lifting for six weeks and, and, and definitely don't use, avoid stairs. No, he was fully healed, completely, absolutely, had not walked for 38 years and yet no physio. He's, he's jumping around. He's walking. He's carrying his bed. This is the God that we serve. This is the God who does the impossible and he's my God. And if you're in Christ, he's your God. Jesus delivered people from chronic illnesses full stop, and he said, follow me. That was all he said. And the story of Bartimaeus, it's a fitting one. He put into practice all those whose eyes have been opened. That's how we ought to live in Mark 10, 51. Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. What do you want me to do? I want to receive my sight. Go your way, your faith has made you well. Now, which, what was his way? It says he followed Jesus on the road. So Jesus became his way. Jesus' way was now blind, now seeing Bartimaeus' way. And we know his name because he hung around. He was a faithful follower. Jesus healed many of physical afflictions, but what he was also able to do is he made people whole. He brought wholeness where there was brokenness. Jesus retains that ability to heal to this day. I'm convinced that most people are happy to be healed of their pains but most are not interested to deny themselves and follow Jesus. They're happy for a better life, a less painful life, a life without these negative symptoms, but not so interested to actually deny themselves and to identify in Christ and his suffering. There's a common sentiment that if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. But as wonderful as good health is, in the light of eternity, it counts for nothing. 
What does it profit to maintain prime physical health for all your life and to die in hell and suffer eternally? What does it profit you? Now, I'm not suggesting that health is of no importance. No, health is a great gift from God. But I'm saying that we tend to value physical health over spiritual wholeness and spiritual wellness. We, we focus a lot on the physical rather than considering the spiritual. What God does when a person is born again is miraculous. As miraculous as someone whose blind eyes see for the first time. He takes that heart that is dry and hard as stone and he causes his living water to spring forth out of it. Just like Moses in the wilderness where he spoke to the rock and, and the rock burst forth or he struck the rock and the, the water came forth. So a heart that's been barren of growth, that's been dry, Jesus is able to transform. He's able to change it and bring life where there was only deadness and softness where there was only hardness and resistance. Jesus did miracles to affirm his identity as the Messiah, but even the greatest prophet who ever lived, Jesus' words, he found himself, John the Baptist found himself in doubt. The truth is, if John the Baptist, the greatest prophet, found himself doubting the identity of Christ, then we can also doubt as Christians. Jesus wasn't doing what he expected him to do. John the Baptist took a stand for righteousness, he spoke the truth, and he found himself in prison. And he, I don't know what he was thinking, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I'm sure he was thinking about, shouldn't Jesus intervene? Shouldn't Jesus do something? This is a grave injustice that I'm suffering. Shouldn't Jesus take over? Isn't this what a Messiah is supposed to do, to save people? He was just preaching and healing people. Maybe that wasn't what John the Baptist thought Jesus should be doing as the Messiah. Matthew 11, 2 through 6, it says this, And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, so he'd heard about his works, and look at his response. He didn't say, praise the Lord, you're doing great things. This is what he says. He sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? That's a bit of a curveball. I wouldn't have expected that. After he heard the works of Jesus, the works of Jesus, he's raising people from the dead, eyes of the blind are being opened, but he's like, what's going on? This isn't what I expect. Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to him. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Jesus as Messiah retains the capacity of God to do whatever, whenever, however he wants. His ways are past finding out. John's doubts came to the service as he suffered in prison. It's a prison that he eventually left through his execution. He was beheaded in prison. But Jesus met John's doubts with his proof of glory. He says, consider the things that I'm doing. Look at what's happening. The blind, they're seeing. People are being saved. The gospel's being preached. 
He was doing exactly what Isaiah said he would do. We need to give Jesus space to be God. We're blessed when we consider what Jesus did in the Bible, what he's done in our lives, how we see him working in the lives of others, and what he promises he will do. Now, he, he may not provide an executive order for you to be free from a prison of pain. He may not. He may not deliver you from the trial when or at, in the way that you think would be best. But let's not doubt his power to deliver us or his grace to save us, to redeem even that difficult thing. Don't let the darkness of the dungeon blind you or cause you to doubt the light of the world who says, come to me and find rest for your soul. Will you come to him? Will you come to him and find rest? That rest is for you. That is why he has come. Isaiah 35, verse 7. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. The books of Zechariah and Revelation, it speaks of a time when Living water, that's a spring of running water, will run from the throne of Christ, which will be in Jerusalem, down to the Dead Sea, purifying it, making it alive again. There'll be fishing, a massive fishing industry at that time. So lands, once thirsty and parched, will have springs of water, and, and there's these jackals, the golden jackal of Eurasia. It's an, om, an om, opportunistic omnivore, that's hard to say. and. Uh, Sometimes you don't realize that when you're writing your notes, how hard things might be to say. Um, but it's like the jackals have their haunts, but they're going to be gone. It's an unclean animal. It'll be gone. It would be a threat to people, but no more. And the passage says, this highway, this road, it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. So highway is something clearly delineated. It's something that's made to have rapid transport to a clear destination. Signage, it's, it's a cleared path. And in that day when Christ is established with his throne in Jerusalem, people will find the way to him easily. There won't be a risk of jackals or lions along the way. It'll be a clear path, a quick path to Jesus. And uh, that holy, it says, that is to be consecrated or sacred. It used to be said that all roads lead to Rome, yet when Christ returns, the way to him will be clear. And we have that way lit for us through his word. Even today, we can find him if we seek him with all our heart. In Bunyan's classic pilgrim, he often turned from that narrow way on the way to the celestial city. He found himself in the slough of despond. He he went off all these side tracks. He's getting all drowsy by the road, and uh, it's foggy. And but it's saying a day will come when the way to Jesus is going to be crystal clear. Even a fool will find it. You won't get lost along that road. No GPS required. You'll know the way will be clear. Now it's wrongly assumed that all religions lead to God. That as if God's in the middle and religions are like spokes on a wheel. That's that's an absolute lie. 
Because Jesus taught plainly that he is the way. He is the door. He is an exclusive way to come to God. If you could turn in your Bibles to John 14, holiness is not a subjective um, idea. It's objective. It's factual and true. And Jesus makes this claim. It's up to you if you believe him or not. And if you believe him, then we need to walk in light of it. Jesus had been talking to his disciples. They were devastated when he said, I'm going to be leaving you. And then in John 14, 1, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Christ set his face like a flint to go to Calvary. He knew what his death would accomplish, that through his death, many would be saved alive. And he would be raised to life three days later. And he would ascend to the Father and prepare a place for those who love him and follow him. And if you desire a place with God for eternity, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Notice the definite article, the, is placed between every single time he says that. He is making an exclusive claim, singular, very specific. There's one way. There's one truth, and there's one life. If you want to come to God, He is the only way, through Jesus. It's not ambiguous. It's very clear. It doesn't mean it's an easy way, but it's the only way, and it is a good way because we serve a good God. Isaiah 35, verse 9. No lion shall be there, nor any, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return, and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. There's plenty of good lion passages in the Bible. You have Samson, he's cutting through a vineyard on his way to Timnah, and it says a young lion roared against him. You have the prophet of Judah who spoke against the altar in Bethel and was killed by a lion on the road. And there's the lion, the dead guy, and his donkey just standing there. And it's like, oh, this is odd. And the old prophet comes and grabs him. That's in 1 Kings 13. Travel pretty dangerous in Bible times. There was a risk that a lion could jump out and and attack you. Thieves, as we read uh, the story that Jesus told, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Travel may not be so dangerous for us as we're walking along the paths. I'm not worried that lions are going to jump out at me. Uh, but there are dangers navigating our life today because the scriptures say the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's written in 1 Peter 5.8. It says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. 
during that millennial reign with Christ, Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years. You won't have to worry about him crouching by the door, seeking to overcome you. Uh, those who are redeemed in Christ, they'll walk in safety. Now, when I lived in San Diego, uh, I remember a boy from Mississippi. So San Diego is the bottom left, and Mississippi is down south on the right side of the U.S. We were playing gridiron. I used to run a youth center. We were playing ball, and, and the ball went into these little shrubs, ground cover about just under knee high. And I expected him to just go in and grab the ball and come back, but he just would not go in those bushes. And I thought, oh, that's right, because in Mississippi, there's a lot of snakes there, tons of snakes. And so this would have been just a prime location by the storm drain, and it was a wet area. Oh, yeah, that was the place for snakes. Now, he didn't know it, but there was no need to worry about snakes. There's no snakes in San Diego where I lived. So he was being cautious about danger that didn't exist, a danger that I was apathetic about. I wouldn't have even thought to think about if there were snakes in there. But had there been a real danger of snakes, his was the better position to take, right? One of safety. His guard was up. And as Christians, we need to realize there is a spiritual battle, and the way we conduct our lives matters. There's a day coming when we can let our guard now, but it's not yet. We can let it down, but not yet. Now is not the time to let our guard down. We need to remember there is, we need to be sober and vigilant, that there are attacks that will come our way. Sometimes the Lord will allow, like in the case of Job and others, where he will allow an attack that will can be redeemed so that our eyes can be fixed upon the Lord we don't need to be preoccupied with Satan and his schemes, but we should not be ignorant of them. The Bible says we should not be ignorant of his devices, that he's always looking for a little foothold. He's looking for some way to, to worm his way into your life, to sap us of spiritual power, and to keep us from becoming those that God's created us to be. So as we're walking this highway of holiness, as we're walking in Christ's way, we're to have each other's backs, we're to be encouraging one another, exhorting one another. If we see someone overtaken with sin and deviating from that path of holiness, we are to graciously seek to restore them, realizing that we too are often tempted and can fall. So the chapter concludes. It says, But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So those who have been bought with the blood of Christ, we ought to walk in a holy manner. Christ has paid our ransom. He's delivered us from death. And when people would go up to Jerusalem in the day of Christ, there would be much rejoicing. They would be singing. There's a lot of those uh, psalms that are the a song of ascent. As you were ascending to Jerusalem, you would sing these songs. And it proclaimed the glory of God and the things he had done. And it was just such an exciting time. You were going to worship. You are going to bring your offering before God. You are going in obedience to what he has said for you to do. Notice that it's everlasting joy. See that? The ransom shall return, come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. And what's everlasting, that means it's good for today too. Everlasting just doesn't start once we get to heaven. No, everlasting is for today. We can tap into that today. We should have joy marking our lives. But joy can be elusive for us. 
Have you ever been so happy? Things were go- Something happened that was so nice and so good. You were just so elated that you felt like nothing could ever bring you down. Like, hit me with anything. I'm feeling so good right now. There's nothing that could knock, knock me off my feet. But all it takes, it's amazing how little it takes to go from such an euphoric, happy point to just feeling like you just want to die. <laughs> and things are awful and terrible. One phone call, one email, something someone says to you, a look they give you, and it's just, it's all gone. All the happiness has just dried up. And so we're trying to get back to that, that place, and it's hard to find using the ways of the world. That that happy feeling is so easily replaced by bitterness and hatred and anger and frustration and disappointment. And it's like, how can I get rid of this? Well, it says here, those who sighed and sorrowed will obtain joy and gladness. It's in those times of grieving and mourning and sighing. And sometimes I sigh. I don't even know. I'm like, oh, and Lord's like, okay, Ben. Perspective change, right. I appreciate that. Because in those moments when I'm so fixed on the problem and what I want to change about my life or my circumstances that I begin, I forget almost instantly who God is and what He can do and what He has promised and the, the blessings that He has given me, the everlasting joy that's upon me. I can walk in that if I would choose to, to say, God, you are bigger than this problem. You're able to change me. When we obtain, so instead of trying to get rid of the bad feeling, when we obtain joy and gladness, it says, the sorrow and grief, they flee away. See how we can go about that all wrong? We're like, I have a bad feeling. I want to get rid of the bad feeling. Get rid of the bad feeling. Instead of just saying, How about I walk in the joy of the Lord? The joy of the Lord will be my strength. And if I choose to walk in the joy of the Lord, the sighing and the sorrow and the grief, it will flee. That word obtain, it means to reach, to be able to, to lay hold of. Joy is not like the light switch for the little child that's trying to reach it. It's too high. Or the their snack, they have a little snack and they want to get to it and and there's like a little child safety lock that they can't really get to it. That's not joy for us. We don't have to say, oh God, can you let me out the joy please? No, that, that cupboard is always open for you. There is always joy to be found in Jesus Christ. There's always deliverance and restoration. There's something for you that God has and he's not hiding it from you, but we can forget that it's even available and settle for striving in our flesh when we have everlasting joy. It's yours through Christ. So if you could turn to, as we close, Isaiah 51, verse 11. Our family at the moment, we're going through Isaiah in our devotional readings after dinner. And this week I recognized a parallel passage. It's like almost word for word. And I'll read it in context. And I think there's a good a good close for us today to think about. Good application. Isaiah 51, verse 11. 
So the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and of the son of a man who will be made like grass? And you forget the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he has prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? We forget. We forget the Lord who made us. We forget that God stretched out the heavens, that he's laid the foundations of the earth. And he says, you have feared continually every day. We can give such a place to fear in our lives. It has no business being there. We can be so mired in fear and uncertainty and cares to the point of forgetting about God. We're easily blown off course even when Jesus is the anchor for our souls. We can live in dread and worry when God's given us words of comfort and the comforter. So he hasn't just given us comforting words, but he's actually sent the comforter to live inside of us, to have communion with us at all times, access to God, no matter where you are. So instead of forgetting God, let's remember him. He says, I, even I, am he who comforts you. So often we are looking for comfort in a changed circumstance. Looking for comfort. If something in my life would change, the comfort will come. If I could obtain this or if this would be altered. But God's saying, I am the one who comforts you. Your comfort's in me. It's not in your circumstances. It's not in your career. It's not in the things that you're longing for. Your life does not consist in your health. It does not consist in the abundance of things you possess. Your life is in me, and I am in you. And that's Christ's word to us today. Let's lay hold of that joy that the wilderness and wasteland God can bring back to life with his living water. We shouldn't settle for runoff when we can have a living spring of water in our hearts. I mean, I want to have that heart. That's a living spring of water that it's actually flowing out of my life. I'm not just trying to get near to something that so I can have some runoff coming through my life and then be dry again. I want, I want my life and my heart to be a source of living water because then I'll never be without it. When we do stop short of obtaining his joy, when we choose to give place to fear, let's repent and choose those straight steps for our feet. This is what God wants to do in you and in me. Let's thank him for that. Father, thank you for sending your son to be the savior of the world. Thank you for the living water that you give of the Holy Spirit who refreshes us, who teaches us, who comforts us. And Lord, if there are some here who are uh, just burdened with weights and cares, and even sin, Lord, I pray that through your spirit, you would, you would reveal that. And you would, you would show 
how, how we can practically walk that way of holiness, how we can make straight paths for our feet as we follow Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, I pray that you would, you would minister to each heart where each person is. I confess, Lord, that sometimes I give too much place in my life for feelings and I forget the things that you've promised. And I settle for scraps instead of sitting next to Jesus at the table. Help us to be as Mephibosheth, who was a man who was lame, yet David gave a place at his table and he ate bread with him continually. Lord, may we be those who commune with you who spend time in your presence, who are untouchable by the, I guess, the pains of this world, knowing that you can redeem even our pain for your glory. Lord, we rejoice in you. We thank you for this everlasting joy. May it be upon our heads today. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.